scripture reading for this morning is from Psalm 87. Please stand for the reading of God's word. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're in the second week of a series titled, Why Sunday Morning Matters, in which we're considering together why gathering with God's people on Sunday morning is of great importance. Now, last week I said that part of what is prompting my desire to uh, preach this series is the pandemic. The latest Barna research indicates that a third of regular churchgoers have not yet returned to church. Now, it's true that there are those among that third for whom it would not be wise for them to return to church because of various health considerations. What's true nationally is true locally. It's the case right here in Grace Church as well. It would not be wise for some of us who are worshiping via the live stream to be present here quite yet. Praise God, we have the live stream available. Also, as I said last week, I am not trying to guilt people into going to church. My desire is for every one of us, whether we've been here every Sunday since worship, public worship resumed, or whether we are uh, still worshiping from home, my desire is that every one of us have a biblical vision for why gathered worship, being together on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, to worship the Lord is beautiful, it's valuable, it's necessary, and glorifying to God. Last week, we began by looking at Psalm 150. Psalm 150 closes the worship book of God's people, closes the Psalter. We, we defined worship as the response of adoration and devotion to the revelation of the glory of God. Our response to the revelation of God's glory. A response that's marked by adoration, our, our lips, if you will, the way in which we uh, offer Him praise and devotion, our, our hearts, ourselves, our, our lives devoted to Him. We considered worship under the four headings of revelation and response, of public and private. Worship is something that we do in private, in our homes, you know, doing our daily devotionals, our daily worship, and it's also public. So revelation and response, public and private, lips and lives. It's not just what we do when we sing, come together on Sunday morning, but it's all of life is worship. We're to present our bodies as living sacrifices before God day by day. And worship is to be centered on Christ. I also mentioned last week that sermon from the 17th century Puritan pastor David Clarkson um, that, I, that I had read that kind of, in a way, got the juices flowing for this series, in part because what that sermon reminded me 
is that this is a problem that isn't a pandemic issue. It's not a 20th or 21st century American, you know, seeker-driven church amongst an individualistic consumer culture issue. This goes way back. He had to preach this sermon in the 17th century because there are people who are not recognizing the value of gathered public worship. In the sermon, which I'll, I'll post on the, uh, our Grace Church Facebook page or something, I'll put it up so that we can read it if you want to read it. It's a great sermon. He, the introduction is eight points. <laughs> eight point introduction followed by 12 points in which he gives 12 reasons from Scripture why public worship is to be preferred over private worship or before private worship. And then he follows those 12 points in which he makes his case by giving a nine-point rebuttal to a potential object, objection to his uh, you know, point, the, thing he's, the case he's making in the sermon. And then he ends by giving five points on how to prepare yourself for public worship before coming. Now, we're going to hit uh, over the, this Sunday and the next four Sundays that follow five of those reasons, five of the 12 uh, that he gives from Scripture. We're gonna, I'm going to preach a sermon on those. I'm going to sprinkle in throughout those sermons some of the um, reasons, that, uh, some of the ways that he recommends that we prepare ourselves for being together in worship on Sunday morning. So last Sunday, uh, Psalm 150, just kind of an overview. This Sunday, I'm going to take the first point that that, that uh, Puritan author makes and, and make that our own, and that is this, that God is more glorified when we gather publicly to worship him. Now, that may seem like a startling claim. I hope by the end of this sermon, you'll realize how obvious it is that that would make sense. But the point I'm making this morning from Psalm 87 is that God is more glorified when his people gather together to worship him. And we see it in Psalm 87 in the very first verse. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. So this is where we're going to go. We're going to take a look at why God loves and is most glorified when God's people gather together to worship him. We're going to do that by looking first at the temple, second at the song, third at the singers, and then fourth at the glory. So the temple, the song, the singers, and the glory. But first, let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we do ask that you would be with us. Lord, we pray that you would help us recognize that First and foremost, it is to our great benefit to glorify your name. Lord, help us to be convinced by your spirit that there is nothing more satisfying for us personally, nothing that will bring us greater joy and fulfillment than doing what we were created to do, offer you glory. And then, Lord, help us recognize the joy that can be found in community as we gather together to glorify you, to magnify your praise in a way that brings you delight. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, the temple. Take a look with me at verses one through three. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, 
O city of God. So where is Zion? In the psalm, the psalmist is referring to Jerusalem. He's referring to the temple and the temple mount, Mount Zion, where God met with his people, where his spirit dwelled, where his people gathered together to worship him. Where is the temple now? Where's the temple now? Where's Zion, earthly speaking, earthly realm? Well, Jesus, when he was meeting with a woman at the well in Samaria, remember that story from John chapter 4, one of the things that the woman said to Jesus um, was, you know, you, you say that we should worship God on your mountain, on, in Jerusalem, on, at the temple. Our fathers, she said, our, our forefathers worshiped him on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And Jesus' response to her is, the time is coming and is now here. Jesus is saying, I'm here. He doesn't say, when it won't matter whether you worship God on Gerizim or Jerusalem. It, it wasn't an either-or thing in his response to the woman at the well. It was a neither-nor. It won't be in either one of these places that my people, he's, he's going to say to her, I who speak to you am he, I am the Messiah, will learn later in, as Jesus, uh, as we read Mark and Luke and the other Gospels where Jesus talks about the fact that he is the temple, he is the meeting place with God, we will learn that it is in Christ that believers will gather to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so it's not a location physically where we gather because that is where God's spirit dwells and we have to go there in order to meet with God. We are God's people united by faith in Christ in whom we have access to God the Father. We worship in a sense in Christ because apart from our union with Christ, there is no standing in the presence of God. We're before God in Christ and in Christ alone. However, Peter tells us that the church is living stones to form a spiritual house, a temple, where the Spirit of God dwells. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 says that the church, the ecclesia, the assembly, The gathered people of God, it is among them that the Spirit of God dwells. Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am among them. And all throughout the New Testament, you have this, not just example of the church gathering together on the first day of the week, on the Lord's day for worship, but also the command from the author of Hebrews, do not neglect meeting together. So where's Zion? Zion is wherever God's people are gathered to worship him. Where's the temple? The temple is wherever God's people are gathered to worship him. Verse 3 tells us, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Glorious things can be spoken of the church whenever the church is gathered together to worship God, what makes the church gathered glorious? It is not the building. It's not 
how well we've dressed. It's not how well we sound when we sing. It is the fact that God is glorified in that place that makes that gathering glorious. I experienced this yesterday. My wife and I together, some of you were there as well at uh, Christina Kranz's funeral service. Christina, the granddaughter of Jerry and Roberta Smith. She, uh, she gained heaven. She's with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yesterday's funeral service was one of the most God-glorifying funeral services that I have ever attended or officiated as a pastor. It was remarkable to hear person after person, including her siblings, her mom and dad, and others who are, are just people from the community, people whom she loved and served, stand up and not so much glorify Christina, but glorify Christina's God. Talk about the way in which they saw something of the love of God as they were in relationship with Christina. It was God glorifying, not because of the church building that we were in. It was God glorifying, not because of how well we, we sang together. It was God glorifying because God was being glorified in that place. Glorious things can be spoken of any gathering of God's people because God is being glorified when they gather. Where's the temple? The temple is wherever God's people are gathered to worship him. Now, do the dwelling places matter? It says on, in verse 1, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. The dwelling places of Jacob is referring to the homes. The families gather together. Again, this is not an either or, nor is it a neither nor. It is a both and. God does love and command that we worship him in private. I mean, we know that from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who would go off by himself to have fellowship with his Father. We know from Deuteronomy 6 as well that God commands families to worship together. It is not that God despises the houses of Jacob, the households of Jacob when they gather to worship him. It is that public Worship is more glorifying to God than that of the individual or family in private. That's the case I'm hoping to make by the end of the sermon here. Let's turn secondly to the song. Look at verse 7. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. When Jesus was meeting with that woman at the well... In Samaria, he said to her, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The ascended Lord said that same thing in Revelation 21.6, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The song is sung, the song that is sung, is a song that is sung by those who have had their soul's thirst satisfied in Christ. Jonathan Edwards, in Charity and Its Fruits, spoke of this when he said this, All shall stand before the God of glory, 
the fountain of love. As it were, opening their hearts to be filled with those effusions of love which are poured forth from thence, as the flowers on the earth in a pleasant spring day open to the sun to be filled with its warmth and light. What a glorious image. The people of God opening up their hearts before him that his love might flow into them springing from the fountain that is his love. Later in Charity and Its Fruits, Edwards will talk about the fact that heaven will essentially be this ever-flowing, recycling, if you will, of God's love being poured out into his people and their love for him being rebounded back to him and this ever-increasing experience of God's love. Edwards talks about the fact that we're all like buckets to receive God's love in heaven, and our buckets are ever filled up, but for all eternity, they're ever expanding. And so there's never this moment in which we lack something of an awareness or understanding of God's love for us, but we grow in our understanding of God's love for us as well. We get a foretaste of that now as we have our soul's thirst quenched. It causes us to sing, to sing of his love. If you've really been thirsty and you've gotten a drink of water, your response to that drink of cool, refreshing water was not one of indifference. It was not one of impatience. It was one of gratitude and joy. So too, for those who have had their soul's thirst quenched through the fountain of God's love open to us in Christ. What it means, therefore, to sing, all my springs are in you, is to sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. It's to praise him for his grace and mercy. Uh, The theologian Ed Clowney put it like this, the overwhelming glory of God revealed in the gospel is the glory of his grace. It is not just the transcendent power, wisdom, and righteousness of God that demand our worship, but above all his love and mercy. The love and mercy of God calls out to those whom God gives ears to hear, those who recognize their spiritual thirst for the love of God because nothing else satisfies, who hear by God's grace that call, who receive, open up their hearts to receive a drink of that fresh water that is the love of God in Christ who then can't help but sing. The temple is wherever God's people are gathered to worship God. The song is a song of love to the God of all grace who pours out his love for us in Christ. Who are the singers? Who are the singers? Look at verses four through six. Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon, behold, Philistia, Tyre with Cush. And you're reading that going, okay, I do not know my Old Testament history. I mean, I know these are places. <laughs> I don't know where and why are they being referenced. I guess this mattered to the psalmists when he wrote it. I guess it matters to the people who were singing it, but what does it mean to me today? 
Well, recognize this. Every one of these peoples that lived in every one of these places were enemies of God and his people. Every one of them. (laughs) Philistia. Well, let's start with Rahab. Rahab is a way of referring to Egypt. God's people had a history with Egypt. They were their former slaveholders. God delivered his people from Egypt. Babylon. Babylon was a superpower, regional superpower, persecutor of God's people. Philistia, lifelong enemies of God and his people. Think David and Goliath. Tyre was a wealthy but Canaanite city, again, enemies of God. Cush was just this distant, faraway country. It was almost like people, when they were singing, this would have been like Cush. I mean, who even are they? But I guess when we get to know them, they're probably not going to like us either. I mean, it's kind of the flow of what's happening in this psalm. Even Israel, remember, even God's people were only loved by God because God said, I just chose to love you. There's nothing in you. This is Deuteronomy 7. There's nothing in you. It's not about you. It's about me and my desire to love. And so I chose you to love you. And then here in Psalm 87, the psalmist is rejoicing because God is saying, guess what? You're not the only ones that I'm going to choose to love. I'm going to choose to love my enemies and your enemies as well. It's amazing what this psalm says. Look at verse 4. Among those who know me. Not among those who fear me. Among those who are indifferent to me. Among those who know me, God is saying, are these people. He goes on in verse 5. And of Zion it shall be said... This one and that one were born in her. (laughs) These enemies, these distant places, because of what God is saying, they will be considered as among those who were not brought into Zion, you know, kind of brought into, but we might say from a New Testament perspective, given citizenship in the family of God. And then in verse 6, The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born there. It's being, you know, I'm I'm writing it down lest you forget. I have brought enemies into my household. I love the gates of Zion, God says, because of the singers that are gathered there to offer me praise. This is a preview of the gospel. This This psalm, Psalm 87, one that may be in your Bible reading plan, you just kind of like, well, it's not Psalm 19, but it's Psalm 87. You just kind of read through it. This is a preview of the gospel. Revelation 21, 27 tells us that only those whose names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life will be able to enter the new Jerusalem on the last day. There is a book in which your name will have been recorded if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Who is given access? Former enemies. 
Paul in Romans chapter 5 marvels at the fact that while we were still enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the cross. Former enemies reconciled to God. Former enemies reconciled to one another. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about the fact that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down in Christ. Psalm 87 is pointing to now and also that great day when God's people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation are gathered together around the throne worshiping him. The singers. (laughs) Rebels. Reconciled to God and to one another by his grace. The song, song of love. Poured back to God because of his love demonstrated to us through Jesus. The temple, wherever God's people are gathered to worship him. Finally, the glory. The glory. I want you to engage in a little thought experiment with me here. All right, you all familiar with Handel's Messiah, uh, the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. All right? Last night I was uh, watching on YouTube a recording of the Australian, uh, the Sydney, Sydney, Australia, the Sydney uh, Philharmonic Orchestra and Choir singing Hallelujah Chorus. It's in my office. Nobody else was here. It's a good thing because I had my speakers up full blast. It was awesome. 600 people in this choir, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Probably 75 or so instrumentalists on the stage. Oboe, bassoon, trumpet, timpani, horn, violin, cello, double bass, harpsichord. Don't forget the harpsichord. Now just imagine with me for a minute that they're all Christians. right? Every single one of them love Jesus and love Handel's Messiah. Because that's not even necessarily a given. right? Love Jesus, love Handel's Messiah. Now imagine them in rehearsal. Start by imagining just one of the one of the altos in her room singing her part and thinking, man, this is glorious. This is wonderful. This is amazing. Imagine one of the violinists doing the same in his or her studio, just playing her part or his part. And their head kind of hearing the whole thing, but it's just that part that they're rehearsing. And then imagine all these different sections kind of independently coming together. So all the altos meeting and, and singing just their part. But they're all Christians. They love Handel's Messiah. And so they're all like, wow, this is glorious. And imagine the violins doing the same and, you know, the people playing oboe and the harpsichord dude is just kind of on his own, so he's always got this feeling going on, like, this is great, but I'm also all alone until we're all together. <laughs> but imagine the, the different parts of the orchestra, the, the different sections coming together for a rehearsal. The choir's not there. The choir's off doing their own rehearsal on another day. And when the orchestra's all together, they're playing, and they're like, oh, this, this is amazing. It's glorious. And the choir's having the same experience. And they're, they're all together singing, you know, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. All four parts are just lifted up in praise to God. And they're like, oh, this is glorious. And then, and then they come together. Final dress rehearsal. Choir 
orchestra. You can hear it, right? It's glorious. And then the audience comes in. It's the night of the performance. And everybody's saying, amen. Hallelujah. Glory be to God on high. Now, in that illustration, the one, if you will, receiving the praise is Handel, right? He wrote it. So let me just run with that for a minute. Where was Handel glorified along the way? Everywhere along the way. The individual in his or her studio rehearsing with their instrument, marveling at the beauty of this piece, bringing his or her part in that moment before the Lord, thankful. Giving glory, praise, if you will, to the author of that piece. At every point along the way in the example, Handel's being glorified. But when, when all the parts come together, oh, where is Handel most glorified? The same is true with God. In our private worship, God is glorified. In our family worship, God is glorified. But where is God most glorified? When his people come together and offer him their praise. Now, here's the major difference between well, not the major difference. The major difference between Handel and God is God is God and Handel's not. But short of that, another difference? People were praising Handel in that example because of Handel's work. They could praise him for his work without ever knowing the man. We get to know God among those who know me, verse 4. Just simply knowing about the work of God would be enough Cause to offer him glory and praise for all eternity. But God says, I want you to know me. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see, could be in a mirror dimly or through a glass darkly. Translation could go either way. But then we shall see fully. Then we shall know even as we are fully known. On that day, when we see, as Paul later says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, when we see Jesus face to face, even now in the gospel, we come face to face. We know Jesus in an intimate way in the gospel and in the knowing, know the glory of God and can offer him praise. When we come together now as God's people gathered, it is like that dress rehearsal. It's glorious. Not because of how skilled we are at being Christians. But precisely because we're broken and reconciled, redeemed, purchased by the blood. We can sing a song you do realize that not even the angels can sing. The angels cannot sing the song that we sing. The song of those who are praising God for the blood of the Lamb by whom they were purchased, redeemed, washed, cleansed, made whole. The angels can't sing that song. They can marvel at it. They can glorify God that it's happening. 
Only we can sing that song. And we come together every Sunday. And together we sing that song. Until that great and glorious day when we're gathered with all God's people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation singing that song forever. So, application. I'm going to uh, paraphrase that Puritan David Clarkson here. How do we apply this in worship? Let it rip. Let it rip. Now, here are his words. What you do in public worship, do it with all your might. Think it not enough to present your bodies before the Lord. It is soul worship that is the soul of worship. Not only lips and mouth and tongue, but mind and heart and affections. Not only knee and hand and eye, but heart and conscience and memory must be pressed to attend upon God in public worship. David says, not only my flesh longs for thee, but my soul thirsts for thee. Then will the Lord draw near when our whole self waits on him. Then will the Lord be found when we seek him with our whole heart. Why does God love having his name glorified? Because in the glorifying of his name, we find our greatest joy. We are doing, when we come together and sing, we are doing what we are created to do. We are doing what will, in fact, bring us the greatest joy. The fact that that seems weird is just an indicator of the fact that we are still fallen, broken people. The fact that we even want that to be more true than we experience it to be right now is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We have an opportunity every week to come together to marvel at the power of God, at the goodness of God, at his beauty, at his mercy, and at his love poured out to us through his son, Jesus Christ. We can do that in private, and we must. But the Lord loves the gates of Zion. We're reconciled sinners joined to sing hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this psalm. We're thankful for what it testifies to. We're thankful for the way in which it, it challenges us to, to better value the the great benefit and blessing and opportunity we have to gather together to offer you praise. We're thankful for the reminder that it gives us that you delight in this, this, this seemingly ordinary gathering of, of, of just regular people in upstate New York. Lord, eternal things are happening here. We pray, oh God, that you would help us to be fully open to your work in our lives through your word and by your spirit that we might come each Sunday of those who are ready to let it rip. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.